All right. Well, we're in questions in the Shorter Catechisms, number 91 through 93. Now, this is really the second half of the, the section in the Catechism that we could call the Ordinary Means of Grace. So we looked at last time the, the first two elements of the Ordinary Means of Grace, which is the Word and prayer. The third element is going to be the sacraments. That's what this, these three questions are about generally, and then the ones following will be more specifically. Specifically getting into the Lord's Supper and into baptism was what they are, what they mean, who partakes, that kind of thing. But while we're still into this, uh, this section of the ordinary means of grace, it's worth it to, to reiterate that to us. The ordinary means of grace is not a bumper sticker theology. It's not, a, it's not something that we just kind of, oh, we want to identify like that. It's what the scriptures have laid out for us in the sense that what the evangelical world has done is attempt to complicate what God has made simple. What is necessary for the salvation of sinners and the edification of saints? The ordinary means of grace, the word, prayer, and sacraments. That's all you need. And if you, think, if you need an example of a way to think about it, think about how we export Christianity. What do we send over there? Do we say, okay, missionaries, okay, you got trained in, at seminary and you have some Bible knowledge and you know some original languages and you know the language of the people that you're going to, but do, do you have enough fog machines? And, and do you have confetti cannons and lasers? And, and what are you going to do? Like, what, how are you going to read and interpret what they think is popular? And, and then how are you, what's your check-in system for children's ministry going to be out in the jungle while you're there? And uh, we don't do any of that. We say, go with the simplicity of the Bible. This is enough. We send them over there like that. But what we say is that, well, we need a little more than that. You're going to have to have a little more juice to actually do the work of the gospel, converting sinners, sanctifying saints, than the ordinary. I mean, just prayer, just the word, just the sacrament. You, you, can't, you can't build a church with just that. But what we know to be true is the exact opposite of that. That's the only thing that builds healthy churches because we know that they're here. And you think about the simplicity of it. If this is the truth, for all people and all cultures and all times, then what does the ordinary means of grace require that you have? A Bible, some water, some wine, something from the fruit of, of the vine, and some bread. That's it. Now you have church. Now you can actually do everything that a New Testament church requires as far as things that you need besides people. That's it. A faithful, healthy, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, biblical church. Why would that be any different in the 1600s than versus it is now? So that's what the, the divines were getting at. Not that they had any competition outside of the Roman Catholic Church. That was really their only competition. They're the first ones to start making things complex, right? I mean, what is the reason for the smells and the bells and for all of the symbols? And then why was the the table in front and the pulpit over there and why are there pictures of Jesus and angels and, and every Bible character and all these statues and rituals and stand up and sit down and you gotta have these things, you gotta bring this stuff, you gotta own this stuff. They were the first ones to say, nah, we're, we reject the ordinary means of grace. Now, we, now, evangelicalism rejects all that. They just bring in stuff that's cooler than that. They just, it's flashier than that. Nevertheless, that's what they were after when they were writing this, because remember the catechism is meant to be able to instruct just a new believer. 
into what is the Christian faith. So they need to know it's an essential element of discipling a young Christian. What is church and how do we do it? The word, prayer, and sacraments. That's what you need. That's what you have been given. That's what the Bible has said. That's what you have to grow in grace and to convert sinners. So the simplicity in worship is what we're after. But look at question number 91. It says, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Now, some of you maybe are ex-Catholics and are already triggered. You're like, wait a minute, what? How could that? They're not effectual means of salvation. Well, read the answer. The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them. Nothing in them. Or him that doth administer them, i.e. me. But only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. So we'll unpack this a little bit. So the first thing we have to get to and get after is that there's no intrinsic power in the waters of baptism or the digestible elements of the Lord's Supper. There is no power in them. Look at 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Ah, you just said that there's no power in it, and then Peter says the opposite. Ah, keep reading. Not as removal of dirt from the body. Oh, we're not talking about the water. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we appeal to God for a good conscience? How can a sinner have a good conscience? faith in Christ alone. That way you can know I have been made clean. My conscience before God is clear. Though I am a sinner, I am justified. And in Matthew 3:11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's saying, my baptism doesn't actually do anything for your soul. But what the Christ will do, that is different. That's the Holy Spirit and fire. So the cleansing fire and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the effectual reality of it. So we're different, obviously, than Rome. And we're different than churches like uh, the Disciples of Christ or the Church of Christ that would say, if you die before you get wet, you're not going to heaven then also we'd be different from Lutherans. Now, we've got some great Lutheran churches out there that believe sola fide, and they say sola fide out of this side, but then over here it's like, yeah, but your baptism really, really, really matters, and that's where you can really find a lot of confidence in. So you should. And we'll get into that more when we, in a couple of weeks when we get into those, um, what those, each sacrament really is. But we're different than that. But here's the question that we have to ask. Does the Bible have any example of somebody partaking in the sacrament and still being condemned? Yes. Simon Magus, Acts chapter 8, right? Acts 8, 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So you know who Simon is? He might be called Simon the Magician in your translation of the Bible. He's this guy running, running the show in Samaria, and everybody thinks he's the greatest guy in the town. He, well, you do all this stuff, and obviously by demonic power, sleight of hand, things like that. But when Philip comes to town and leads this massive revival in Samaria, Simon's like, that, wow. And so he seemingly believed, it says, he believed and was baptized. But then Peter shows up because this is the first extra or first 
outside of Jerusalem mass conversion to faith. So Peter, as the apostle, as the leader of the apostles, has got to come and confirm it. He's got to come and say, hey, what's going on out there? This has never happened before. This is a new deal, so a real apostle has to come. Philip is a deacon. So Peter comes, and when Peter comes, he and John, uh, presumably, uh, they see this is, a, this is legitimate work of the Spirit. This is legitimately happening. And so then when they come and they're there, then the people do receive the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to get into why the Holy Spirit came later. That's another topic for another day. But Simon Magus, the magician, he sees that and goes, I want to be able to do that. How, do I, how much is it going to cost me to pay you so that you can teach me how to do that? Give the Holy Spirit. People go nuts. They do all this stuff. You can control masses. Let me, I, whatever you want, I'll pay you. And then Peter says, Acts 8, 20 and following through 23. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. The Texas way of saying it, you die with your money. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God, meaning you are not justified. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That is not him rebuking a believer. That is him saying you are not a believer, though you have professed faith and been baptized. So Simon Magus is exhibit A, that the sacraments do nothing in and of themselves to save you, which is ironic because the Catholic Church says that they do, and they see Peter as the first pope, and this is involving both of them. So toss the Bible out, and you can do whatever you want. So it's not, they have no intrinsic power, and they're not contingent upon the pastor. For 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, the pastor, the priest, whoever administers them. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We usually see this in, um, you know, we talk about this in church growth things, like we can't make our church grow, only God does. But what, what uh, the, the divines are using this is, is that it's God who does it. The validity of the person, Paul says, is nothing. So whether you're preaching as, as a waterer or as a planter, whatever role you're finding these people in, you are nothing. Now, you need a little bit of church history to understand this because in church history, there have been a couple of different eras where people, men who are either priests or pastors or whatever, apostatized, whether it's by the threat of the lions or whether it's by uh, just leaving the faith or getting a better job in the Roman government or on and on and on. And so then those that they baptized are like, does my baptism count? Because the one who did it is a pagan. Do I need to get rebaptized because he walked away from the faith? And the answer would be no, because there's no intrinsic power in the person that does it. It's in, it's in uh, what matters is that not the holiness of the administrator, but the Spirit's work in your life, because he who does is nothing. It's God who causes the growth. And also, was it authentically uh, uh, a true church? Meaning you weren't in a false church with a false pastor the whole time. You can have a true church and, and the, the, the pastor or the, the lead of the elders can apostatize. So it's not contingent upon him. And then lastly, what it says is a working of the spirit received by faith. And the proof text they give is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And how does that spirit come to us? We know from elsewhere in Scripture it's by faith, by faith that he grants us. So it's not that there's something magical in the water. Now, we can go too far and say that, that the water doesn't matter. Nothing magical in the fruit of the vine and the bread of the earth. We can make too little of that. But what they're making the point right now is, is that none of those things are going to save you. It's always faith alone and Christ alone. The work of the Spirit actually making you new. That's what does it. So then, we know what they're not. What, what are they? Question 92. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So it's kind of a, a Protestant, well, even maybe just even a, uh, more of a wet, uh, an American Protestant um, practice to not even say or use the word sacrament. And the reason why is because it just sounds too Catholic. It ju that sounds too Catholic. And in some sense, I can sympathize because that, you, you, we can, we don't, the word doesn't matter. It's what are they? What, 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 what are the things? Well, we gotta call them something. So then they see here in the answer, a holy ordinance. Wow, that sounds better. We'll call them ordinances. And that's what like Baptist churches have traditionally called them, ordinances. The, the word we can take or leave, sometimes I feel a little bit like the Catholics have taken too many good words from us. And, we, and we're like, ah, like, I want that back. I want catechism back. And we didn't let them have Trinity, even though they still use it. Uh, so, but take it or leave it, it doesn't matter. The word sacrament actually originally comes from an ancient practice uh, between a general and his soldiers. That, it, that it, the sac a sacrament, that word, was an oath that the general would make to the soldiers and the soldiers would make to the general that we are gonna fight for and with each other against this enemy until it's over. So it was, a, it, was, it was around an oath in wartime where that word actually comes from. But what it says there is that they are sensible signs that seal. Signs and seals, they're visible signs of invisible grace. So you can think about lots of things that would be in the same way. So when I explain it to my kids, what I tell them is, is like this ring right here, does this make me married to mom? They're like, no. Well, what made me married to mom? This covenant that we took and professed. But you can't see that. You can't see the commitment, but I want everybody to know it. The same thing with this one. You could have stolen this. Does this make me a graduate of Texas A&M? No, it does not, Miguel. <laughs> uh, I knew he would do that. Uh, but, but it tells everybody that I am and that I'm obnoxious every time somebody talks about it, Miguel. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a visible sign of an invisible reality. You can't see my graduation. You can see this, though, on the outside, right? So it strengthens our faith to see these sacraments uh, as of God's covenant faithfulness. To see them, we're reminded of it. That's why we don't do baptisms privately in homes. That's why also we want to avoid, if at all possible, to take 
uh, communion even to shut-ins without at least some portion of the church coming with them because we all need to see it and we all need to be around it. It's for all of us at the same time. So that means that if we're going to immerse people and they're in a wheelchair, then we got to get a lot of men to carry that person and take them down in the water because it's for all of us to see and be encouraged by. That the covenant benefits, it says, are applied to Christians. Now, what are these covenant benefits? The covenant of grace that Christ brings, well, it's always covenant of grace, the new covenant era in the covenant of grace that Christ brings in. These are the seal of them, that God obligates himself to fulfill his promise. Like a ring, I'm obligating myself publicly to fulfill my promise to my wife. And that's what her ring means for me. So we obligate ourselves in faith to him. Now, here's a, we'll do this for a little bit. We're not going to get to dive a tie, a, a deeply into it. But what we fail to learn a lot of times in Protestantism is that there are old covenant sacraments also. And they have parallels in the New Testament. So let's look at the old covenant sacraments. Genesis 17, 7. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Okay, you say you're going to do that, but how will they know? It's invisible. We can't see this covenant. Genesis 17, 10. This is my covenant. Even so far as saying this is my covenant, even though we know it's representative, it's that connected which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, keep this in mind. How many times can you circumcise a baby boy? Once. Don't forget that. Now, the other sacrament in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is Passover. So follow along with me, Exodus 12, 1 through 13. I know it's a long text, but we can read it and grasp it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. I mean, this is where the year starts now. God can change the calendar. It shall be for the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. You're with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, I mean quickly. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So do you see there how many times are you supposed to do the Passover? 
every year, regularly, over and over and over again. So you can't repeat circumcision. You must repeat Passover, and you're nourished by it. You sit and you eat it, and there's blood involved in both of them. The bleeding child and then the bleeding lamb. It will be a sign for you. Now that all changes in the new covenant that Jesus institutes. You know, we read that every week. This covenant, this, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. Now look at that, Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We, we, we do that every week. And then the baptism part. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say repent and be circumcised. He said repent and be baptized. So we see this parallel here of a continuing meal and a one-time physical identifying act. Now go to question 93 and it'll all tie it up. Sacrifices in the New Testament are baptisms, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, how do we know they changed? Well, Jesus is the one who said to do them, both. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The meal changed. Now the mark changes, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now the mark changed. The meal and the mark changed. Now think about the differences here. What did you have to see in the old covenant? For sacrifices, right? It was really bloody. We've talked about that before, right? The priests are essentially just butchers. All they do is kill and cut up animals all day long. That's all they do. Blood everywhere. New babies born. On the eighth day, what do you do? Cut him and make him bleed. At the beginning of every year when the Passover comes, what do you do? Kill an animal and its blood shall be assigned to you. Bloody covenant signs. Bloody sacraments. Now that's all different now. Why? Because Christ's blood has fulfilled all in all and is sufficient for everything. So we no longer have bloody old covenant. We have a new covenant that's just water and wine, representative of what Christ has done. So we see circumcision and baptism, they're done once for initiation. Once for initiation, our entrance into Christ and Passover and the Lord's Supper done regularly for nutrition for our perseverance and growth in Christ. That's why we regularly do that, which is why we should be extremely slow to rebaptize anybody because you could not recircumcise a child. And, and, and in vow renewals, even in weddings, we understand the concept behind that, but you already did it, so just be faithful to it. It's all, you've already made that promise. Just keep doing it. This, we get into symbology, but that's not what, what God's after in these sacraments, to have them that way. So we see it passing from a bloody 
uh, practice to something that's not anymore because Christ's blood has fulfilled all in all. So that we are blessed by these sacraments, by watching them and seeing them. We're not saved by them. The error that Protestantism, and the further you get away from Rome, the, the greater this error becomes is that they become meaningless. That it's just kind of whatever, it doesn't really matter. I mean, did you, when we read in Exodus 12, what did it say about the food? Don't leave any of it from the Passover till the morning. And if you do, burn it, which is why we should take great care of the communion cups here. Kids shouldn't be running up here and just drinking them and just taking them and doing and messing around with them. It shouldn't matter. This is not something that's just kind of silly and trivial and that you can be snacking on the back. We just stole them from the kids' room because it didn't really matter. Or in COVID, people are saying, yeah, just grab a Coke and some Ritzes and then just do it at home. That's fine. No, we, we can't do that. This is a bigger deal than that. It doesn't save us, but it nourishes us. It encourages us. It blesses us that there's the spiritual reality that these sacraments are meant to edify us, not just be photo ops or traditions to keep our 501c3 status. These matter to us. So God condescending down to a human level, giving us visuals of his love, grace, and covenant faithfulness. You know, people often say like, well, you know, the arguments for like using screens and pictures and movies and all that kind of stuff. We live in a visual culture. When have we ever not lived in a visual culture? Find me a, a group of people that just had no concept of anything beautiful. Or there, there's no cave drawings. There's no images and representatives, whether or not, there's no idols being carved out of palm trees. We're always a visual culture, and God understands that. So what did he give us? Two sacraments to see all the time. That's where you need to look for it. So toss out your Jesus storybook Bibles and your figurines and all these other pictures. You don't need pictures of Christ. You have it in the sacraments with the water, the wine, and the bread. That's what Jesus said. I am. I am. My blood is true. True bread. And those who believe in me, water will come up and gush out of them to eternal life. Well, that's it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for condescending down to us, for to carry us along on this pilgrim path. You understand our weakness. You understand our makeup because you made us and that visual things help us. They help us to make things real. They help us to orient our minds. May we see again, may we see afresh the visual gospel that you intend in these two sacraments of baptism and your supper. May they become new to us. May, may we discipline ourselves to reappreciate or appreciate for the first time what it is that they are to mean and what it is that they, they, they don't look like anymore, that they're better now, they're, they're bloodless, that they're not just for half of the population of the church, not just little boys, men, but everybody. Everybody bears the mark of baptism who's in your family, and everybody can participate in your supper that you have saved. You bring all of them to the table. And may we not lose the mindset that our older brothers and sisters in the faith had when they ate that meal 
in the old covenant that they had staffs in their hands, their shoes were tied, their belts were tied. They were ready to go. They were ready to go to the promised land. That every time they ate that meal, Father, you intended to remind them that this is not where they're supposed to be, that there is a land flowing with milk and honey that they are going to. And we know that that wasn't a physical land, that it is a spiritual land that we are still journeying to now. So may that mark us when we take your supper every week and when we see baptisms as they come along, that we do so with our shoes tied, we do so with our belts tightened and our staffs in our hand. We are journeyers, we are pilgrims. And we know that you are bringing us to the end, the greatest city, the celestial city, the final Jerusalem, the true promised land. May it remind us and encourage us in that. And may we be reinvigorated to appreciate these sacraments anew. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the blessing that it is to gather at the end of your day today. And we ask this all in Christ's name, amen.